So we're going to start uh, kind of a, a longer set of uh, studies. We're going to be going through the first half of the Gospel of John. Uh, John, of course, is a long book, 21 chapters, but it divides neatly into two different parts. Uh, you'll often hear these called something like the Book of Signs and the Book of Glory. There's other names that kind of go with it. But you know, uh, the, the first half of the book of John, roughly, uh, we're going to treat that as 11 chapters. There's kind of questions about exactly where to divide it. Um, th- it really centers around seven signs that Jesus performs. And then the second half of the John really, or second half of the Gospel of John focuses on Jesus, uh, last week, the Passion. Uh, and especially a, a huge part of that that's unique, unique to John is the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, so this is something that has sort of been going on for several years. I've been teaching through John in, uh, the community group that, that I lead, uh, with, with, along with Josh Cools. And so, uh, thought that it kind of made sense at this point to, to spend a little bit of time going through John. We're going to be going through it in a little bit more detail than is typical for a lot of things that we've looked at. Um, one thing I'd like to say is I, I appreciate questions. I'm, I'm happy to you know, take questions at any time. Um, sometimes I might want to try to finish a thought, and so if you raise your hand and it looks like I've seen you, I probably have, and I'm just kind of waiting to get through what I wanted to say, and then I'll uh, get to your question. But um, I would like to try to keep this on topic, so if, if you have comments that you'd like to make, I would ask that you restrain yourself on those and uh, maybe make them afterwards. Uh, and I'd, I'd certainly be happy, you know, if I, if, if I think it's something that really should have been in there and you know, did, didn't make it, and there's a lot of stuff like that, I'd be happy to, you know, kind of, uh, explain that next week. So, you know, uh, email me if you'd like to make any comments. <clears throat> I'm, uh, particularly excited. I've enjoyed studying, uh, John for the past few years and, you know, being able to see more about the person of Jesus Christ. I think John is, uh, probably the, uh, most personal picture that we, we get of Jesus Christ. And I, I wanted to kind of start with a, a quote from John Owen just to kind of get us thinking about the opportunity that we have to, to see Jesus Christ more than we'll open in prayer. So th- uh, this is by John Owen and the Excellency of Christ. Owen, by the way, is a, a Puritan theologian in England roughly 300 years ago. And he uh, you know, was particularly focused on, on Jesus Christ uh, as well as the Holy Spirit and his theology. I have had more advantage by private thoughts of Christ than by anything in this world. And I think, when a soul hath satisfying and exalting thoughts of Christ himself, his person and his glory, it is the way whereby Christ dwells in such a soul. If I have observed anything by experience, it is this. A man may take a measure of his growth and decay in grace, according to his thoughts and meditations upon the person of Christ and of the glory of Christ's kingdom and of his love. A heart that is inclined to converse with Christ as he is represented in the gospel is a thriving heart. And if he is estranged from it and backwards to it, it is under deadness and decays. Dear Heavenly Father, I really thank you for the privilege that we have of being able to approach your word you know, I uh, realize that you know, with, without you stepping in, we aren't capable of discerning truth on our own. Any uh, truth that we, we perceive um, on our own, we would actively suppress, in, in fact. But 
um, we, we would not seek you out, even if we were able to do so. Thank you uh, for your great love and mercy in choosing to reveal yourself to us when we were your, were your enemies. Thank you for how you have chosen to reveal yourself to us, not as information to be processed and analyzed, but as a person to be loved, admired, and worshipped. We thank you that not only did you reveal yourself to us through this person, but that you bore the just penalty for our cosmic treason against you and that person. I confess that given what I, um, given what you've done for me, I, I've not considered your revelation with anything resembling the attention that you deserve. Pray that in studying the life of Jesus Christ that we would, uh, you would cause us to fall more deeply in, in love with him and that my mind would be drawn into a greater and greater knowledge of my Redeemer. I pray that you would use the time that we are about to spend looking at a part of the Gospel of John to store a hunger for you, a hunger that can only be satisfied with true bread. I pray that you would open eyes more fully to the light that you provided us. Okay, so today I think we're going to cover the background of the Gospel of John. We might be able to get into the prologue just a little bit. If I were teaching... A lot of other books of the Bible, I'd probably spend something like 10 or 15 minutes on the background. Uh, some books, I think, deserve a little bit more time on the background, and John is one of them. Uh, the reason, there, there's multiple reasons that I'd like to do this, but one of the reasons is that John, in particular, is a book that you'll hear questioned by mainstream scholarship today. Um, one of the sermon series that I listened to in preparing for this was by Kim Riddlebogger. Uh, he's a Reformed pastor in the Los Angeles area. And he said that he's one of three Western scholars who affirms that John actually wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, he was probably exaggerating. But uh, the, you know, the, the, the point is that you know, if, uh, <clears throat> if you kind of were to look at a lot of uh, different, you know, Academics, most of them would say that John was written well after the the time of uh, the apostles, not by an apostle, certainly not by John. Uh, no one really has a clear idea. Pretty much everyone in the ancient world, from about A.D. 150 to 300, is probably suspected of writing the Gospel of John, except actually John. <laughs> um, and I, I think the reason for that is that John, in particular, presents a real problem for liberal Christianity. Um, and liberal Christianity is a word that gets used in different ways, so I, I'd like to define how I'm going to use it in this class, not saying that this is the right definition. You, you might kind of hear liberal Christianity defined in you know, political terms, or you might hear it kind of defined you know, maybe in terms of permissiveness. Uh, a, a church that might have women elders, for example, would be liberal in comparison to that. What, what I mean by liberal Christianity is you know, a form of Christianity that... Uh, doubts the supernatural. Um, they do not believe that Jesus actually performed miracles. They don't believe that Jesus literally rose from the dead. They might believe that that's sort of a metaphorical thing. And this it grew out of the Enlightenment. Uh, it really kind of took over academics, especially in Germany. And it's taken over a lot of good uh, uh, seminaries uh, since then. So when I refer to liberal Christianity, that's what I'm going to be referring to specifically. Um, Yes. <clears throat> no, no, a good, good question. Yeah, um, yeah my notes actually say they, they certainly don't believe that Jesus was God incarnate. So, 
um, they, they certainly would doubt that Jesus was actually uh, God in, in the flesh. And you know, one, one statement that you'll hear from people from that background might be that Jesus never actually claimed to be God. And a person making that statement has probably concluded that John doesn't really rep- represent the actual teaching of Jesus. They've, they've kind of written that off. Uh, in the 1800s, scholarship said that you know, John wasn't even written until AD 200 or so. That's changing, thankfully. Uh, one thing that's actually kind of fascinating is a, a very small fragment of the Gospel of John was found that dates from AD 125 to 175. Now, the, the dating on that isn't completely firm. It's actually based on kind of analysis of the type of penmanship. This penmanship changes over time. But the penmanship is consistent with the type of writing that you'd see in that period. And so the, the, the fragment is probably about that old. There's no, it, not, we, we don't have solid proof that it is, but, and this, this was found in Egypt. You know, John was, you know, written in Asia Minor. So, you know, if, if this was written about 150, John would have had to have time to start to be distributed and actually to, you kind of fall into disuse even, um, you know, since, since this, this fragment was uh, kind of found in a waste heap. Um, so what I'm going to do with uh, the Gospel of John is I'm going to go through something I learned, I think, back in third grade. Who, what, when, where, why. We're going to spend more time on some of these than others, but the, the first one that I'm going to start with that we'll spend the most time on is the authorship of John. And the reason that I want to do that is I'd like to give you confidence that you know, in this church, we, we really do believe that the Apostle John wrote John not because we're conservatives and that's what conservatives are, are supposed to believe, but because that's very consistent with everything that we know about John. I think it's probably the most reasonable conclusion to make. And what, what I did several years ago when I started this study is I was genuinely curious why it was that the, the gospel or that the authorship uh, of the gospel by John was so disputed. And so I actually went to the, the most liberal websites that I could find and tried to get the best reasons that they had for, for doubting that John wrote that. And so I'd, I'd like to summarize those reasons. The, the main one, and, and they're, they're right on this, is that the content of the Gospel of John is very different from the other three Gospels that we have. Um, a lot of you have probably heard of the term synoptic Gospels. That refers to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And those are grouped together because they're the content is very similar in the, the three uh, Gospels. There's certainly you know, differences between them. Uh, they're, they're all three very you know, helpful and unique views of Christ. But it, you know, since apostolic times, or not apostolic times, but since the time of the Church Fathers at least, it's been recognized that the Gospel of John is different than those three. Um, it, I, I found a really nice summary. This was actually written by the pastor of the church that I went to in Santa Barbara, uh, Reed Jolly. In John... We find no record of Jesus' birth or childhood, no mention of Mary by name, uh, or Joseph, uh, no record of Jesus' temptation in the desert. We look in vain for the Lord's Prayer. We find no parables, no exorcisms, no transfiguration, no Olivet Discourse, no celebration of the Lord's Supper with the disciples in Jerusalem, no cursing of the fig tree, no agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you know, all of the things that I just listed are, are things that are really uh, familiar to us because they're so important in the three synoptic gospels and they're absent in John. And so that, that's something that we, we definitely need to deal with. And I, I'll, I'll talk about that in a few minutes. Um, 
Another difference is that in the Gospel of John, Jesus is far more clear about his identity as not only as the Messiah, but as God. Uh, He's much more veiled about that in the three synoptic Gospels. That that is a significant difference. That's something that we need to address. And another thing that's different is that you know, all of us know that there's a very significant focus on either the kingdom of heaven in Matthew or the kingdom of God. Uh, those are presumably the same thing in the synoptic gospels. And that's really not mentioned uh, by name, at least, in the gospel of John. It isn't the same focus that it is in, in the synoptics. So that's one reason that you know, liberals would kind of point to a much later date for the authorship of John, uh, past the, the time of the apostles. Another reason is that the theology is too developed for a first century date. Now, I'll talk about that in a few minutes. Another reason are uh, some apparent contradictions. If you're trying to put together a, uh, <clears throat> why am I blanking on the term, a, a unified uh, a harmony of the Gospels, uh, it's very easy to do for Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John kind of throws a monkey wrench into things and makes makes it more difficult to construct, you know, a, a straightforward timeline. One example of that that we'll see is that in the synoptic gospels, Jesus clears the temple during the Passover week, right before his crucifixion. In John, a very similar event takes place three years before the crucifixion. We're going to come to that in a few weeks. Um, And the last reason that's given is that the synoptic gospels are clear that John was a fisherman and uh, Bart Ehrman, at least, pointed out that an uneducated fisherman wouldn't have been able to write the Gospel of John. So I, I'm going to address all of those. But before I do that, I, I'd like to spend a little bit of time saying why we do think that John, uh, the apostle, wrote the Gospel that bears his name. Now, you might think it's simple. I mean, you look in your Bible, the title of the, the book is John. That was probably added later. Uh, the, the church would distribute copies of the Gospel kind of in, in the, the second century A.D., and they started putting titles on them based on who uh, was believed to, to have written them. But the title, John, is, is not part of the original composition. Nevertheless, yes? I've heard uh, arguments that Revelation was written by John, and because of all the references to the temple, mm-hmm. John must have been a priest. I have not heard... You know, any speculation that John was a priest that um, you know, since he was a Galilean I, okay. it, it seems unlikely that he would have been trained for for temple worship. Um, one of the things I was actually going to talk about you know, uh, you know his, his family owned a fishing boat and that was a pretty large piece of capital equipment the it, it's reasonable to believe that his family was probably well to do. Um, not necessarily rich, but they, they had means. Um, and so one of the things I was you know, going to say is John probably, uh, he was in an area that had a significant Gentile presence. To, to run a business, he was probably being groomed. You know, to take over the family business you know, centered around the fishing boat, it would have been not, you know, helpful to have a knowledge of Greek. And so it wouldn't be unreasonable that his family wouldn't have been able to, to, to think that his family would have been able to, uh, you know, pay for you know, some degree of education and, and some knowledge of, of Greek. Um, and you know, another thing, you know, families that had the means to do so would go to Jerusalem three times a year. Uh, a good Jewish family would do that. 
you know, for the three important feasts, uh, Passover, uh, Feast of Booths. And, and so, yeah, um, so, you know, it, it would certainly make sense that he would know the temple well if he traveled there three times a year and, and, and spent some time at the, te- the temple. <clears throat> but uh, in your notes, I've, uh, I, I, I've given you a website that has a lot of the, the things I'm going to go through here and a lot more that I'm going to skip in the interests of time. In the 300s AD, that's when the, the canon was assembled. And a, a major player in that was uh, Eusebius. And he categorized you know, uh, various books. Some of these are books of the New Testament. Some of these are books that were kind of floating around in the church that did not, that were not included in the New Testament into either three or four different categories. The important ones are you know, books that, that are uh, clearly part of Scripture. Then there's questionable books. And finally, books that he considered to be unreliable. And uh, John was categorized as a book that's unquestioned uh, when he was doing this. There, there were no doubts about its authenticity when the canon was assembled. And that's not true for some books that are, are part of the canon. Um, let me make sure I get all these right. Um, uh, James, Jude, Second Peter, Third uh, or Second and Third John, Revelation, and Hebrews were categorized as questionable books uh, by Eusebius. <clears throat> so 8220, Origen uh, testified that he had learned from tradition <clears throat> that the, the, the Gospel of John was the work of, and I'm quoting from Origen, him who reclined upon the breast of Jesus, John, who has, le- who has left behind a single Gospel, though he confesses he could make so many as not even the whole world can, could contain them. And that's uh, again, it, in 220. So it's, it's really clear that about a 130 years after John is believed to have been written, uh, people are, are very confident in its authorship. Uh, going back a little bit, in 200, Tertullian you know, expressly states that the four Gospels were acknowledged to be the work of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John ever since the apost- uh, apostolic period. And so he's saying that you know, this is something that we've been confident in for quite a while. Uh, I realize this is 100 years after the fact. I think we'd probably find a lot earlier stuff if we had anything, but we simply don't have any writings from the early, uh, from the church that's much earlier uh, than what I'm quoting. <clears throat> um, I think the, the most convincing one to me is Irenaeus. And so this is in AD 180 that he's writing. Um, and, you know, he affirmed that John was written by the Apostle John. The, the reason that Irenaeus is very significant is that Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp. And Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. And so you know, he's you know, about as connected as, as you can get at, at this period in church history. I think we would, we would have things uh, earlier if we just had any of the writings from, from earlier. Um, but you know, if, if there were questions about about it, you know, he would be the person to know that you know, John wasn't affirmed to have written the gospel. So church history, I think, gives us very good reason to believe that you know, the gospel was written by John. Um, if you're curious, I've got quite a few more things. I'd be happy to, to forward my notes to them. So I'm, I'm going to skip a, a number of these sort of in the interests of time. But I, I, I did give you the ones that I think are the most uh, compelling to me. <clears throat> But beyond that, there's also internal evidence in the gospel that uh, John is the author. 
John does not name himself in the gospel. On the other hand, a lot of the disciples are named. And there's one that isn't, the disciple that Jesus loved. We're actually not going to come to that in uh, this series. Uh, that doesn't happen you know, in the first 11 chapters. It, it happens in the last week. But there isn't really a good reason that you can come up with for why one disciple wouldn't be named and the others would unless the author was kind of humbly not wanting to insert you know, himself too much in, into the story. Um, the... The gospel is also fairly clear that the individual is an eyewitness to the, to the events <clears throat> in it. And you know, kind of seeing the, the things that he's an eyewitness to as we look at the gospel of John, it, it really would need to be someone that's very close to Jesus. You can actually kind of go through and by process of elimination, you can kind of narrow it down to Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other disciple named Judas and John. Those are the only two people that uh, could have written it uh, kind of given what we know, and I think John is a more reasonable uh, assumption simply based on what we have from church history. So now I'd, I'd like to go back to those reasons that we uh, we, we listed that if the authorship is contested, and I, I'd like to address them. Uh, they, they are somewhat reasonable objections to various extents, and I, I think they, they certainly do deserve uh, some attention. I think it's actually going to help us understand the gospel a little bit better to do that. The main one is that the content is very different than the synoptic gospels. And the reason for that we actually see in church history. Uh, church history is also unanimous that John wrote much later than the other three gospels. Um, we'll, we'll talk about the date in a, a little bit. Most seem to place it around AD 90. Um, there isn't very much for that date, other than the fact that it was written later uh, than the other three Gospels. <clears throat> but because of that, John had probably read the majority of the Synoptic Gospels, if not all of them. He knew the material that was contained in them. And I, I think it's really clear when you look at the Gospel of John that he's intentionally not duplicating things that he thinks are covered very well in the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, on the rare instances where he does cover the same incident that the synoptics covers, he adds uh, kind of new theological material that's not there in the synoptics. He has a very good reason for repeating the feeding of the 5,000, for example. That's the only miracle that's in all four Gospels. <clears throat> um, I'd like to spend a little bit of time just on one of the, the absences, because I, I think that this will kind of help us see you know, the, the differences in the Gospel. Why doesn't John have parables? And as I thought about that, I, I kind of thought back to, to Matthew. And so I'm going to read uh, a few verses out of, of Matthew. <clears throat> this is Matthew 13, uh, 10 through 18. Then the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak in parables? And he answered them, it has been given to you to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak in parables, because seeing, they do not see, and hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. We, we could easily spend a whole Sunday school kind of trying to unpack what Jesus is, is communicating there. It's, to me, at least, it's a, one of the more difficult parts of the, the Gospels to understand. But the, the thing that I would like to kind of draw out is that Jesus used parables to teach those who, who knew something 
and, and believe something and affirm something about who he was, but to obscure those same truths from those that rejected it. Let me kind of uh, just read what D.A. Carson had to say in his commentary on, on Matthew. He says that we, we cannot, that, um, Jesus' answer cannot legitimately be softened. At least one of the functions of parables is to conceal the truth, or at least to present it in a veiled way. And so this is how Jesus taught publicly. He taught in parables in a way that's concealed. In John, we, we see the private side of Jesus' ministry. I, and I think John is intentionally telling us by leaving parables out that he's giving us a different view than we have in the Synoptic Gospels. And if you were to step back and think about it, the absence of parables actually, I think, speaks to the authenticity of the Gospel of John, not to it being you know, a forgery. Uh, but by, by, written by someone pretending to be a disciple that, you know, who is writing much later. It, here's the reason for that. The, the person that wrote the Gospel of John, who, who I do affirm is John, knew a great deal about Jesus Christ. And you don't have to know very much to know that Jesus frequently taught in parables. If you wanted to write something that was plausible, you'd add parables to it. Uh, John didn't do that. It, for one, he doesn't feel the need to make it plausible. He knew that the people that he was writing to would, would recognize him as John the Apostle and would accept the authenticity of what he was writing. And so he wasn't trying to make the, the gospel sound authentic. He was trying to communicate theological truth. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> um, let's see. The, the next objection is that the theology is too developed for a first century date. And this really kind of comes from you know, the fundamental way that liberals think, that you know, Christianity is, you know, we, we recognize that you know, Christianity is a very complicated system. There's a lot that would have gone into developing it. Um, and for us, it's no problem to believe that Jesus Christ as God, you revealed a great deal of truth. It took the apostles some time to completely unpack that, you know, what it meant, but that, you know, that there's kind of a supernatural source of where Christian theology comes from. Uh, secular or liberal scholars would not affirm that, and they, they need more time for this system to develop. And so that, that's why they would date John later. So it, it's basically just a different pre presupposition. Um, I, I certainly do agree that you know, John makes it more difficult to construct a nice, precise theological timeline, uh, harmony of the gospel, so to speak. But you, um, John's point you know, isn't to give us a biography of Jesus. I'll talk about that in a little bit. His, his point is to give us you know, new theological insights in, in, into Jesus' ministry. And the, the apparent contradictions are not too difficult to deal with. I'll, I'll take the, the cleansing of the temple, for example. You know, John places that three years before uh, the, uh, the Passion Week. The Synoptic Gospels place that in the Passion Week. Well, it's not too difficult to imagine that, the, um, that, John, that Jesus would have cleansed the temple when he first started his ministry, when he saw these hooligans you know, in there desecrating the temple. And it's not too difficult to imagine that the riffraff would have come back after three years and needed to be cleansed again. So... It, it, there's perfectly reasonable ways of reconciling things. I'm not going to make that a focus of, of this study, but I did want to alert you to it in, in the event that you're kind of talking to someone that's been influenced by, by this liberal strand of Christianity.
Uh, and I also already talked about the kind of uneducated fisherman issue. John would not necessarily have been an, an educated. Uh, he was living in a region that had a significant Gentile presence. It's not difficult to imagine that you know, a family with a business would have trained their son to, to have some knowledge of Greek. Um, the, the Greek in John is very simple. Tim, when you were in seminary learning Greek, what was the first thing you translated? Oh, Mark, okay. Most would have said John. <laughs> um, the, from, from what I've heard, at least, the, um, <laughs> the, the Greek in John is so simple that it's almost always the first thing that theology students are trained to translate in seminaries. Okay. I, I thought that was going to be a safe one. Oh, well. <laughs> um, John, you know, the, the, the writing in, in John is, is fascinating. It, it, in one level, it's incredibly simple. And at the same time, it's incredibly profound. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The writing is incredibly simple. You know, nothing slightly complicated to that. We could spend our, our lives, and we'll probably spend eternity, trying to understand that in its fullness. Um, <clears throat> the, the other thing that you know, Bart Ehrman didn't seem to understand is that in the ancient world it was perfectly acceptable for someone you have to speak and have a secretary write that down. So John wouldn't necessarily have needed to be fluent at, at writing Greek to have written the gospel. In fact, Paul, who is incredibly educated, uh, used a secretary to write at least most of his epistles. Uh, and the, the names of the, the, the scribes that, that actually wrote them down are, are often included in the epistles. That, that's how we know that. Okay. I did say that we'd spend the most time on uh, the, the authorship of John. If any of you are interested in the notes, send me an email, and I'd be happy to uh, kind of send you, you some additional information on that if, if, that, if that's something that you're curious about. The next thing that I'd like to deal with is what form of writing is John? That's kind of the what. Uh, you'll often hear people say it's an eyewitness account. And that's there, there's certainly an element of truth to that. I, I mean, I, you know, I, I believe that John was an eyewitness to these events, and he is recording things that he really saw. But I don't think that the style of the, the the type of writing in John is an eyewitness account strictly. An eyewitness account should be sort of just the facts. You know, tell me what you, you saw, don't interpret that. There's a great deal of analysis and interpretation. And there's a lot of selection. John could have written a great deal more. He's picked very specific things because he wants to make specific theological points. Uh, and so... Um, uh, your biography would probably be a better genre uh, for for John, but th there's a little bit more to it than that. I don't think John is trying to give us you know, the the life picture so much as he's making theological points. One of the apostolic fathers uh, called John a spiritual gospel, and I, I think that's uh, a good way of describing it as well. The next question that we've got is when, and. Most commentaries seem to place John between 90 and 100. These are you know, conservative commentators. <clears throat> Might sound a little bit late, but in the ancient world, a disciple would typically be an individual in their teens. And so let's say that John was 20 when he became a disciple of Christ. The um, church history is unanimous that John lived to an old age. That would put him at age 90 in AD 90. Sorry, at age 80 in 8090, if, if he was uh, 
if he became a disciple at roughly age 20. So that um, that's consistent with John being written kind of towards the end of John's life. On the other hand, there's very little evidence for that 80-90 date. There aren't problems with earlier dates. Probably the big question is whether John was written before or after the destruction of the temple. And I don't think it's a particularly big deal either way. Um, I would lean towards a, a later date because one of the emphases that you see in John is as Jesus as the temple. And that would make sense if the temple, the physical temple had been destroyed. Um, there is one instance where you know, John talks about a pool in the present tense where it existed. And that would suggest that Jerusalem was still standing when he wrote. And that, that would suggest a, a date before AD 70. So it, it is an open question. I don't think it's a particularly important one. Um, I, I, yeah, I, yeah. It, it certainly is a bigger deal for Revelation whether it, it whether Revelation was before or after AD seventy. Um, I, I don't have a strong opinion myself as to you know the the order of whether the Gospel of John was written first or the letters. Um, one of the commentators, I'm not sure I agree with this, would uh, said that um, the letters were probably written later because the the, the, um, the gospel is, you know, focuses so much on you know, Jesus' uh, your divinity that the, the letters are kind of correcting that a little bit and really stressing his humanity as well. I, I don't know that, I, th I think there's a good balance in John, so I don't know that the letters are necessarily necessary to correct anything, but... Um, I'm just trying to remember that. Uh, I think the letters were written primarily to a Gentile church in Asia Minor. Is that right, Tim? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the the, the idea behind Gnosticism is that they believe matter was evil. And so having God actually take on a, you know, a physical form is completely antithetical to their way of thinking. And so they, they tried to make Jesus a spiritual being that didn't have a physical you know, uh, presence. And the, and the letters certainly you know, uh, combat that. I, I think, personally, the Gospel of John is very balanced. Jesus is a very physical person. He gets tired. Uh, and you, you, there's there's kind of a constant emphasis on him physically doing things, um, and at the same time, there's a very strong emphasis on his divinity. Probably the least important of these questions, but just to kind of keep with my theme, I I, I kept it as where. Uh, church history tells us that John was written in Ephesus. Um, probably was written someplace in Asia Minor, and I I don't see any issues with Ephesus, but I don't think it's uh, a particularly important thing to know. But the uh, the, the last question, I think, is, is quite important, and that's why was John written? Thankfully, we don't really need to speculate on that because John tells us. It's at the end of the Gospel. I'm going to read uh, 20 verses uh, 30 and 31. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Uh, and so... Uh, kind of as an encouragement for us to believe in Christ, I, I, I think is what this verse is saying, but I think there's a little bit more to it. Um, 
This was probably written in John's old age. He administered to the church for, for some time. And if you look at 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, it doesn't really matter which order these were written in for, for what I'm saying to be true. One of the things that you see is that there were people that were part of the church that John was involved with that had left. They had been apart for a significant amount of time. People you know, thought that they were genuine believers. And they, they, they left decisively. And you listen to what John writes. This is uh, 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. I think John, you know, in his life, had seen a number of individuals who had professed faith. But that faith wasn't authentic faith. It wasn't saving faith. And that eventually manifested itself in them departing. And so John is not writing this necessarily to unbelievers to help them you believe and, and join a church and walk forward in an aisle. I, I think he's writing this you know, to, to people that go to church uh, because there are people who attend church that you know, might believe in a way, but not in a complete way. And it, that, that happened with these individuals in 1 John who had been a part of a church for a significant amount of time and had left. And again and again in John, we're going to see people believe in Christ and then you realize that that's not authentic faith. That, that's a very strong theme in the first 11 chapters. And I think that's what John is really getting at here. And I'll, I'll justify that over the coming months as we, we really look in, uh, into the different signs and these instances where people seem to believe and then when Jesus interacts with them, you realize that it's uh, very far from authentic belief. <clears throat> so, I think I'll, I'll conclude with why might John be important today? And one of the reasons is that we live in an age that's very theologically deficient and, and, and shallow. And much of what you know, cr Christians seek does not have a, a lot of depth. And there, there's a lot of people, I, 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 I fear, that profess faith in Christ. They've been told, you know, if you um, believe a certain set of facts, that you're okay, you have eternal security. And saving faith is something more than that. Um, and, and John really confronts that, uh, more so than, than many other uh, parts of the, the New Testament. Um, another reason that I'm excited to study is that it's an incredibly uh, intimate and, and clear picture of the person of Christ, more so than the synoptics. I really do think that you know, John is kind of trying to give us you know, a private view of Jesus' ministry, whereas the synoptics are presenting a public view of Jesus' ministry. It's a, a different perspective, and it's a really a rich perspective. Um, John presents Jesus as uh, you know, the, the Son of God most clearly. We live in an age where it's very fashionable to say, I think Jesus is a good teacher, but he wasn't God. Uh, you could say that, and a lot of people would nod their heads affirmatively in our society. Um, and the, the Gospel of John is completely incompatible with that. The, the, the picture of Jesus that's presented in the Gospel of John could not be a good teacher. Uh, let, let me read you a quote that most of you have probably heard uh, by, by C.S. Lewis. And I, I think that this particularly applies to the picture of Christ that, that's in the Gospel of John, although it applies elsewhere too. 
I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of one who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to any patronizing nonsense about this being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. So I think that's probably a, a good place to stop for today, but we've got time for questions. Um, I would say no with a really big asterisk. <laughs> um, the, the gospel is written in such a way that the person writing it claims to be an eyewitness. And so if it were written by a different disciple, and it wouldn't necessarily need to be one of the 12, but it would need to be with someone, it would certainly need to be written by someone that had followed Jesus around. <laughs> well, I, I, I would say, yeah, I, I would say the internal evidence is you know, very strong for John if you interpret you know, the disciple whom Jesus loved as being John. Um, you know, um, you know, he describes himself as having a very prominent role in the Last Supper. So, you know, that, that really... It, 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 it really could only be one of the 11 disciples, not including Judas Iscariot. And most of the disciples are named. And so you, you really only have the disciples that aren't specifically named as likely suspects. And that's just you know, the other Judas, not Iscariot, and, and John. And I, I think that once you take church history, it's very reasonable to affirm that it was written by John. Um, but so I, I, I would say that technically speaking, it wouldn't do a great deal of damage to assume to, to maybe say that Judas, the, the other disciple wrote it, but I don't think that's likely. No. So I, I, I would say that the authorship is clear and it, it has been clear until German liberalism. Um, the, the church has never questioned John in, until relatively recent times. Other questions? Yeah, and that 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 passage is always kind of. I've never felt like I understood it as well as I would like to. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Um, mm. so, so, yeah. Uh, you know, he only, you 
Yeah, yeah. But yeah. 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 The the. No. No, no, I, I, I think that, that that's uh, correct. Yeah. I, I think it came out of German liberalism in the you know, late 17, 1800s. Uh, but it it's kind of permeated academia. So if you were to go you know, to a seminary that's not from a fairly conservative uh Denomination, you'd find a lot of the the scholars uh, would would not affirm that you know, the apostle John actually wrote John, um, and and liberalism is a spectrum. You know, you, you can have someone that you know, has been influenced by that some, and you might have an unhealthy degree of skepticism about the the authorship of John, but you know, still affirms the resurrection. So you, you'll you'll kind of find an entire spectrum, not just you know liberals that deny the resurrection and conservatives that affirm that John wrote the, the gospel. One of my favorite modernists, a guy named A.T. Robinson. Robinson, he wrote a book called Three Days of Investment, basically made the argument. This guy was a modernist, sort of played with the nations of the Christian but he argued that New Testament claims about the whole thing often before 87. I'm not sure I, already, I share his position, but interesting from a guy who's from Oxford, it's a tedious book to read, but uh, really well documented. It makes you wonder. Sometimes what happens, the question, like Keith's question and others, uh, in terms of did John really write it, when was it written, what's the fruit when they get to that conclusion? Oftentimes the fruit is we want nothing to do with this holy one of Israel. How can it be? <laughs> no, I mean, you yeah. can look at the fruit in terms of theological outworkings, and often that's the case. Um, yeah. I don't, I can't judge their hearts, but um, in those sins, uh, just kind of a curious one there. In terms of uh, John not being able to be fluent with Greek, let's go ahead and put the shoe on the other foot and think about it. Let's think about our low-income kids that are in school right now. How does that feel when we say, oh, there's no way they could possibly be proficient with these great languages? The same people that are writing that, the same mm -hmm. people who say you're a racist or an awful human for thinking that about today's kids. But it's cool to do that to John. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, along those lines, John probably moved to Asia Minor you know, before the destruction of the temple. I, 80, 60 is a, a possible date. It could have been a little bit before or a little bit after that. But you know, if, if he was writing in 8090, he's lived you know, among Gentile Christians for 30 years. And during that time, he would have gone from house church to house church and told his story. That's a lot of time to kind of learn to speak it in Greek, <laughs> um, you know, with with help from an interpreter um, initially, perhaps. So, you know, it, it's it's certainly not implausible that you know, that John actually wrote this. Okay. Well, anyway, I'm looking for this forward to the study. The last thing I'm going to send you out with is an encouragement that if you have the time. 
taking probably close to two hours and reading through the Gospel of John a, a few times as we do this, I think you'll benefit a lot more from the, the study if you're able to do that. And so I would strongly encourage you to do that if you're able. Thank you.